0: In my lifetime, much has changed with the institutions and traditions of American culture. Some of those institutions are unrecognizable over the course of the last 50 years or so. Perhaps nothing has undergone more change than the institution of marriage. Is marriage in trouble? Who is the author of marriage? How does the Christian view of marriage differ from the secular view? Is marriage an important thing to God, the God of the Bible? Marriage is our topic today on Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor of St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the worst, how much trouble do you think marriage
1: is in? Uh, It depends on which marriage you're talking about. And um, there's some really bad marriages and there's some really good marriages. Most marriages, I would think, most normal marriages are a mixture of good and bad, or of being in trouble and being successful. Um, I think that the key to having a good marriage is to realize that your marriage is in trouble to realize that there are forces at work trying to undermine it. Now your question was about marriage in general, I know. I can't hardly think about that without thinking about my specific marriage though. The marriage is in trouble. Marriage has always been in trouble. There's always been it's it's always been hard for human beings to sacrifice themselves for another person, to, to give up their rights, to, to love and serve other people. Um but marriage is also doing great things. Marriage is also there, there are lots of successful marriages and you're never going to get rid of it because it's programmed into who we are as human beings. So. You're not going to give me a number, are you? <laughs> no. no, no. <laughs> I kind of Some know. things can't be, you know, mathified. Some things can't quantified. be quantified. Yeah, and, you know, in, in sort of formula, formulaic ways. Well, if I were putting a number on it, it would be closer
0: to 10 than closer to 1 in my lifetime. And, of course, what do I know? Everybody has a fairly small sample size of experience through the course of their life depends on what things are like culturally in your town or your church or whatever. But I can remember when it was frowned upon for people to get divorced. That was, that was a public failure when that became noticed to everybody. I can remember when sleeping around was a really bad thing, uh, extramarital affairs and things like that, which seem to be uh, almost the the letter of the day these days. It's changed a lot in my lifetime, and I'm assuming that this has all had a substantially negative effect on the institution of marriage,
1: at least in our country. Am I overstating it? Um, I mean, things have definitely changed. No fault divorce uh, has been a um. a a really bad thing for marriage. It's been a really bad thing for women who have married people, married guys, um, given up a career to uh, raise a family and take care of a home and then are left abandoned without, with the income that they could have earned if they had stayed in the career and been single Um, to break covenant without any reason at all has created a culture where covenant breaking is expected. That's true. I, I hesitate to paint the past in rosier colors than it was. I, You know, to, to say that marriage used to be good a hundred years ago and now it's bad. I, there were lots of bad marriages. There were lots of people um, doing bad things as a, a part of my, my family's story is one of my great grandfathers. Um, uh, was a farmer lived on a farm with with his wife and my my grandparent and brought home a venereal disease this is in the late 1800s early 1900s brought home a venereal disease and um my great grandmother ended up divorcing him because she got he, he got her sick um I, I think that this sort of behavior is um it's People are fallen and broken and selfish, and this is the way that people have behaved from time immemorial. And um, discouraging, yes. Uh, Have there been changes recently, like I said, uh, within the past generation or so uh, to marriage, uh, an attitude towards marriage? Yes, very much so. our, Our individualism is becoming celebrated in ways that it maybe wasn't 150 years ago. But um, marriages have always been in trouble. It's always been hard work to be married. It's never been, uh, you know, you can just set it on autopilot and let's go. It's always been difficult. And that should be encouraging to us, too. It's not, it's, we're not, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not breaking new ground. We're doing things that, you know, being married involves behavior patterns and relational patterns that go back millennia and God invented it. And there's a good way to do it, and we don't have to figure out what that way is. We just have to practice it.
0: Well, you anticipate my next question. You said God invented it. My question was, if marriage had an origin, when was it originated, and who was the originator? You say God originated marriage.
1: Yeah, and I shouldn't maybe have used the word invented because that, that that's the gives kind of the vibe of you know God is sitting around thinking, all right, I got these humans I created with something that they can do to, I don't know make kids and not get lonely at night and those sorts of things. Actually, it's 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 less that God invented marriage and more that marriage flows out of his character. And not just marriage, too. Marriage is probably the closest picture we get of the character of God in this way. But, but I realize we have a lot of listeners who aren't married, that we have some single listeners. And I'm not saying anything that doesn't apply to them as well, that God— The Christian God is not this big man up in the sky. The Christian God is three persons, eternal, completely and infinitely in love with each other, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's never been a moment when the three of them have not been completely in trance with each other's company, in loving each other, in serving each other, and being with each other when god decided to make human beings the father son and holy spirit made us in his image to look like him male and female he made them genesis 1:27 says god made us he designed us for relationship so marriage isn't something that was just made up look it's not it's not some sort of like societal institution that was just made up by human beings you know for convenience it's not something that's evolutionarily grown into that's that it's something that, that goes it's, it, it goes right to the heart of who we are as people made in God's image. And uh, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling, marital counseling. people they they crave good marriages. people who are single many times long to be married, people who are married many times long to have good marriages and they're all looking for the same thing. They know deep down inside, That there's something, I'm not going to use the word magical because that's very rom-commy, although there's something about rom-coms that taps into this as well. They know there's something deep and profound and cosmic and real, capital R real, about human relationship. And that's because we were made for it, we were designed for it. Not everybody was designed to get married. Everybody was designed for relationship, though, and marriage is one way, one excellent way that we experience this.
0: So is the origin, uh, God creates Adam, then God creates Eve from Adam, and their husband and wife,
1: is that the origin? Yeah, it goes back right to the very beginning. There was never a human being that wasn't designed for relationship. So what would you say to me if you could read my
0: mind, I'm, I am suspect that most People who don't necessarily follow your line or agree with your line of thinking are thinking to themselves, oh, well, I've heard enough. I'm out of here. Because if God made Adam and Eve, and if that's the origin of marriage, that's too narrow for me. I want to be able to get married and divorced and get married and get divorced and maybe play around a little bit on the side. And, you know, that's what I want to do. So it's important to me to think of marriage as a civil institution not a divine institution,
1: what would you say? Um, God invented both of these things. There's not like a separate world where you have like um, divine world here and civic world here, supernatural world over here on the left and natural world over here on the right. Dividing the world up in that those sorts of categories, uh, you know, sacred and secular, it's very much an enlightenment thing. It's not the way the world has ever worked up until the past 200 years. And I can make a good argument that it hasn't worked very well with us. This dividing okay, our lives Okay, make that up. argument. I want to hear it. D- dividing our lives up, which is maybe take us a little bit far afield. I'll tr- try and keep us close to home to some extent. Dividing our lives up into sacred and secular has meant that people, um, there's, a, there's a lot of options here, but one – The two big broad options on the ends of the spectrums are people are like, I don't need any sort of supernatural world. I don't need God. I don't need any sort of like deep cosmic meaning that's bigger than my own existence. So I'm going to live life in the here and now based upon just what I see and experience. And what that leaves people with is this sense that I don't have purpose. I get up. I go to work, I make some money so I can buy some gas to get up and go to work the next day. And I might have a few pleasures along the way. I might have some good food, I might have some sex, I might take a vacation, but that's my life, and it has no more meaning bigger than that. And there's this is one of the things that we as a secular society have bought into. And you can say, okay, but there's a faith world, this is, this is extreme, the faith people are over there, you know. They've got that covered. So you look over there at a lot of faith people, and you have people who um, uh, uh, they don't think that the environment matters. They don't think that relationship matters. They don't think that um, uh, jobs really matter. I kind of grew up in a church like this where you have to go to a job to make money, to, to, to provide for yourself. But ultimately, what's really real is this, the, the sacred world, the spiritual world. And so you get people who are living half lives on both sides. You get the secularist who's missing out huge portions of his uh, what he knows, what he uh, not not knows, but what he intuits is deep, meaningful things. I, I just, maybe I've mentioned this in here before. I'd be surprised if I hadn't. I was just having a conversation with a group of people recently about a podcast I listened to, uh, This American Life, and um, is um, um, a segment hosted by David David Kestenbaum, who's a, a physicist nuclear physicist and also a host of um, um, a radio host on, on the show This American Life. He does a fantastic job. But his belief that there's nothing immaterial, there's nothing sacred out there, there's nothing spiritual out there, means that he views his own daughters as and his or his own he's got two kids, at least he did at the time of this recording. He views them as, in his own words, machines. I I bet that when he tucks them into bed at night, he has a hard time thinking of them as two machines that he's putting away for the night. And the reason why is is because there's something deeper and bigger about humans and human personality and relationship that he's missing out on because he's strictly secular, strictly materialist. The the, the spiritual person is going to have the opposite problem, you, you know, the sense that like um. I go to work every day and it doesn't mean anything. Well, yes, it does. God created the physical, God created our jobs. So I I just don't think it works. It also, if I can talk about one person in the middle of those spectrums, the person who tries to live in both worlds, who tries to say uh, spiritual life is important to me, physical life is important to me, but the two of them never intertwine. They never meet. And so they live dual lives. Where they can live for money, they can live for uh, self-aggrandizement. They can live for um, uh, whatever. How, how, they can live for sex or for good food or for vacations. But then they can turn the switch and all of a sudden be spiritual. Go to church or for go an to, hour on Sunday. Yeah, or go to go to mosque or go to synagogue, and they can be spiritual, or they can do their meditation. A lot of times, I think about, um, and I, I this is an old illustration coming from me. Um, I think about the Beatles, you know, and especially the Beatles that, that, you know, they break up. And in the 1970s, I was talking to my daughter um, once about George Harrison and, uh, you know, the Eastern religion life that, that he was involved in, meditation and those sorts of things, completely divorced from his day to day life where he was sleeping with his friend's wife. And those two things, he could separate those things. But what that does is it just tears you apart. You're living. This is, this is why we have identity crisis is because we take our identity and we split it in half, these sorts of things. And um, I, I, the best thing to do is to say, we are both spiritual, physical beings. We live in a sacred, secular world. We live in a divine and actually, I would just be comfortable saying the entire world is divine. Gerard Manley Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Marriage is the same way. Marriage is sacred. It's also civil. Marriage has to do with souls. It has to do with bodies. It has to do with money, but it also has to do with emotions. It has to do with relationship. It also has to do with housekeeping. And to divide those two, to, to say, which one is it? It's actually, it, be, it makes best sense when it's both.
0: And you, know, you don't really have to do that. We do it to ourselves. Yes. We don't have to divide all these things. It's artificial, things yeah. It's art. Yeah, artificial. So, uh, I guess Adam and Eve debuted the one man, one woman model for marriage. However, in 1 Kings 11, verses 3 and 4, we read, Solomon had 700 wives and, just to make sure, 300 concubines. How is it that the one man who received the gift of unprecedented godly wisdom Managed to collect a
1: thousand wives and concubines. Because even wise people are stupid sometimes. Even wise people are foolish. And Solomon, is he a good guy? And it's a very complicated question. Uh, Solomon, um, the Bible describes him as being a wise man. And yet, when given the absolute power of being king of this little nation, he does what men do when you give them absolute power, which is he collects money and women. And he d- destroys the lives of how many, so it's a 1,000 women. Were any of them happy? Were any of them fulfilled? Almost certainly not. So, yeah, doing what, what, what we would call sexual assault, forcing women into a harem. Uh, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And um, the, the fact that, he, that he's described elsewhere as wise because he did make some very, very wise decisions doesn't mitigate it at all. He, he he trashed the institution of marriage and he did it to his uh to, to his own downfall he did not die a happy man he did not die with a happy family um, his son loses the kingdom um, the Bible describes uh, him as uh, slowly degenerate Solomon is slowly degenerating away from wholeness and happiness and peace to a life of idolatry almost certainly to his own desires and b- becoming l- less than human in, in, in his behavior. And so, uh, yeah, that's a bad thing. That's so sad. It is super sad. And I people will ask me sometimes, so this is a lot of people who are, who, who are familiar with the Bible will say, um, what's the deal with all these bad people? And if the Bible's, you know, supposed to be a good book and Uh, Your religion is supposed to be a good religion. What's the deal with all these bad people? And this is a good time to stop and say, my religion is filled with bad people of whom I am just one of them. And I'm no different than Solomon. I'm a jerk too. Um, Hopefully um, it could also be described from time to time as wise. But but thankfully, ultimately, God is not evil, even though his human creatures are. Uh, God is faithful and God is good and even when Solomon and Aaron Miller aren't it's a good way to gauge God's mercy because we are after all all jerks yeah, yeah.
0: and most of us if we had an opportunity to deal with a real jerk would just yeah I'm done with you and God doesn't do it that way
1: no he keeps on loving Solomon and us so
0: i don't think we can talk about marriage without talking about sexual immorality um, one man, one woman for life. It's kind of, I think that's qu- kind of the maybe oversimplification of a biblical or a Christian moral right. perspective on marriage. But right away in the beginning when God makes covenant with Abraham and then uh, Sarai can't have children, so Sarai gives Abraham her handmaiden. So Abraham goes into the handmaiden. Well, that seems like that should have been a red light. Seems like Abraham should have said, oh, no, that's not the one man, one woman principle. Uh, David, David has many wives. David uh, sees Bathsheba, and all of a sudden he decides he have, has to have her. Doesn't He doesn't seem to have a very good understanding of one woman, one man. So if Abraham, Father Abraham, or King David... Or as you and I both know, we could go on and on about the people who have violated the principle. If it's
1: okay for them, why is it a problem for us? Why can't we do that? Well, it's not okay for them. Let's talk talking about Solomon is that... um, Ah, David was still described as a man after God's own heart. Yeah, God is gracious and merciful to people who sin. You know, the odds that... The odds are high that many of our listeners have cheated on their spouse. This is just the statistics, right? If God treated us the way we deserved, we would all be dead. But God is still gracious and merciful. He's still good to his fallen human creatures, even when they rebel against him. Um, yeah, God. God's design is one man, one woman for life. And a big reason for this is because God designed marriage to be a reflection of his own character and the father, the son, and the spirit do not cheat on each other. They are above all faithful. They're loyal. Covenant loyalty is such a huge quality that the Bible over and over emphasizes a huge quality of God's that the Bible over and over emphasizes. And that's why in, in my relationships, um, I'm called to, to, to I'm called to this level of covenant loyalty, not because I need to like do these, not because. Well, you're a pastor, you're a Christian, you should just be a good person. You know, the, that's not the it's not that. It's that being a good person means looking like God. God designed us to look like Him, and when we're faithful in our relationships, whether it's to our spouse or to our kids or to our parents or to our friends, when we're truth tellers, when we don't abandon. When we don't use our words to tear down, when we when we are faithful in relationship, we look like God, and he's pleased with that, and it makes sense of our lives. It makes sense of our lives to look like him because we were designed for it. What doesn't make sense is to just do what I want to do. Every single person who's listening to this has wanted to abandon a relationship before, a relationship that they were committed to. Could be marriage, could be a friend relationship, could be a parent child relationship, but doing that there's a certain sort of itch that that could scratch from time at times, but but doing that we you know it's wrong, and even if you do it, and even if there's things about it that are pleasurable, there's a part of it too. Well, one thing we do now is we pretend like it doesn't matter to hurt other people. Like, I have to do what's right for me. And this is just, it's, 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 it's just, you see people with trails of hurt, hurt lives behind them because they just do what they want to do. It's easy to see from the outside that being unfaithful is bad. It's hard for me in my relationships. To, sometimes I'm like, well, I just have to do this. I just have to like cut this person off. I just, I'd be really happy if I could cheat on my wife. Um, it's easy for me to feel like that. It's hard for me to see that sometimes that that's, actually going against what it means to look like God. And so, in our marriages, in our relationships, this opportunity to look like God is a can't-miss opportunity. We get to be faithful because God's faithful. We get to look like Him because He wants us to look like Him.
0: Revelation 19, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Then in Revelation 21, verse 2, the Apostle John writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this makes me think that the concept of God as husband and church as bride was a concept that preceded the marriage concept of Adam and Eve, two human beings that looking at Adam and Eve is really like looking at a shadow of the big reality of God and his people.
1: Am I on the right track here or can I make that comparison? Yeah. So, so the, uh, actually the very beginning part of the Bible does, it does two things. One that was, you already talked about the thing that you're talking about is at the end of Genesis two, God, you know, creates this man and woman, puts them together and um, says, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul in Ephesians 5 says that that's actually talking about Jesus and the people he's going to save, the, his, his people, uh, Christ in the church. And so marriage is like like you said, that's a good like it's an echo, it's a shadow. I'm not saying at all that it's unimportant, but I'm saying it's an echo or a shadow of God's plan to join himself to his human creatures, to be in relationship with them. The other thing that we've already talked about, the, the other uh, the facet of the diamond of marriage in Genesis 1 is, is that God says, I'm going to make humans, he doesn't say I, he says, let us, plural, make humans in our image, male and female, he made them which tells us this is the very first chapter of the entire bible that god created the first husband and wife to be an image of him it's not it's not just the case in genesis 1 that me that i individually am an image of god it is the case though that i in relationship with angela and by extension my kids my friends uh, my neighbors I in relationship am an image of God. God created us for self-sacrificial service and relationship, and so both these things are the case. That when we're in relationship, when we're married, we are reflecting the love, you know, a the love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for each other, but b what you brought up, the love that God has for His human creatures as well. And both these things are at the heart of the human experience. So,
0: so can I conclude? Uh, All of us, everybody listening to us, can think of somebody whose marriage has failed or whose marriage is now in trouble. Um, But we can also, if we work a little harder, think of married couples that we know, that we've known for a while, whose marriages are wonderful. Um, They're good. And when you think about that husband and that wife, you almost can't think about the one without thinking about the other. There is a dividing line there that really can't be found. So when you look upon that, go ahead, listener, and think of those two people right now. Do you get a peek at the divine? Do you get, do you get a chance to see something there that is more than just boyfriend and girlfriend or, or, or whatever,
1: yeah, for, for sure. Like like we've been talking about, that's designed to echo the divine. And when you see it, when you experience it, it's it taps into that deep sort of... When you see somebody... um, my, my grandfather did this. My grandmother had dementia. She got dementia in her 90s. And he refused... I'm not saying this is the right thing for everybody. But he refused to put her into assisted living. He wanted her at home. And so... He spent and this probably shortened his life as well. he spent his his 90s, the early part of his 90s, taking care of her. He gave up his life so that she could be at home and she could live in the house that she had lived in since World War II. When you see something like that, when you see somebody do the hard thing and say, I'm committed to this person, it would be culturally fine. Nobody would nobody would question me at all, if I just used some of my savings and put her in an assisted living home. I could visit her maybe once a day, and then I could go and I could have my friends and I could have my life and I could take trips and those sorts of things. Nobody would have nobody would have faulted him. Why did he do that? I mean, the short answer is he loved her. But that's just that's just that that's just code. That's just shorthand for he and she had reflected. The, the, the interpersonal life of the Trinity for seven decades, and he wasn't going to abandon that. He wasn't going to abandon that. And that whether he realized he was reflecting the interpersonal life of the Trinity or not is not the point. There are Christians who have great marriages, Christians who have bad marriages, of course. There are unbelievers who have great marriages. All of them are reflecting the interpersonal life of the Trinity. That's why it's so attractive to us That's why the desire for like this wonderful, romantic, fulfilling relationship is so powerful for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's because we crave looking like the God who designed us to look like him. And um, when you see it, it's amazing. You're right. It's, It's a wonderful gift. But I will say this, my grandfather and my grandmother had to work at it. Their marriage was not an easy one. It wasn't just, sunshine and roses. They had, um, uh, you know, they had struggles and they had fights and they had disagreements and they had resentments that they grappled with and battled through. And that's what, to go back to what I said at the beginning, every great marriage recognizes that it's not a great marriage. It's, it takes work. So
0: in closing, let's imagine that we're uh, talking to a husband today or a wife and they're listening and they're in that place where the the self-centered part of them is saying you gave it your best you just need to get out i just need i just need to end it i don't want to end it but i got to do something i just need to get out maybe they have some close friends who are saying to them you know he's a jerk she's a jerk whatever you just need to get out and move on and now they listen to this conversation and they view the question through the lens of what the scripture has to say about marriage and some of the things that we've talked about. And it gives them pause to kind of reevaluate their feelings about what they're going to do next. What would you say to that husband or that wife?
1: I would say it's good to pause. Um, I would also say that I can't pastor anybody you know, through a microphone. So I don't know what they're going through or what's happened. There are things that happen in mar- there are things that happen in marriages, uh, specifically uh, sexual immorality, adultery, which are so, which can be so devastating. It's not a rule that you have to get divorced. There are some really wonderful, strong marriages that have survived uh, infidelity, but Jesus does give permission. And so i I would want to talk to them and find out their story and where they're at and where their heart's at. But, but I, it, it, it encourages me if, it does, if this does give them pause and, and if they do stop and think, maybe my motives are self-centered. Maybe my motives are postmodern. Maybe I'm trying to actualize myself and do what I want. And maybe I can find, through the help of Jesus, I can find some deep satisfaction by giving myself up for the sake of this marriage to try and repair. And But that goes, too, for friendships. Don't just abandon your friendships when things go south. Hang in there and work on it. There's something about who God is and how he designed us to look like him that we tap into when we're faithful in our relationships.
0: That's our conversation on the subject of marriage. We genuinely pray that you are blessed by our program. If you find these discussions helpful, we have more than 70 episodes featuring a wide range of topics on a variety of platforms. Thank you for listening to this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. For Pastor Aaron Miller and our production manager, Larry O'Leary, I'm Chuck Rather.